0: Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've actually been seeing patients for almost 25 years now. So I started blogging back about five years ago and podcasting just last year. I wanted to extend the walls of my practice to those who might already be in therapy, but would be interested in hearing what another psychologist had to say or the many people who might never have considered going to therapy. I thought they might be curious about what someone like me might have to say. So welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about codependency. A lot of people use that word, and so I always have to ask them, now what exactly do you mean by that? Because I think there's a lot of confusion about it. Actually, even experts on codependency disagree about what codependency is. In fact, last week I asked people on my Facebook page what they might want to work on in 2018, and codependence was one of the first things that they mentioned. So that's why we're talking about it today. We'll look at the history of the term, just a little bit of it. I'll use some actual examples from my practice, and I've come up with five questions, both for the enabled and five questions for the enabler. Codependency has a lot to do with someone enabling another person to be dysfunctional. And these questions are certainly not comprehensive, but they're meant as a guide for thought and reflection. I'm also going to offer you certain books and support groups that can be helpful. And our last feature is an email from a listener. Is the seven-year itch really something real? We'll talk about it. And again, as always, what you can do about it. Thanks for being here. And we're going to be talking about codependency. You know, people describe themselves as codependent these days about as commonly as they ask for ketchup with their fries. But what exactly is codependency? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or is it somewhere in the middle? There are many different definitions of codependence. And again, as I said in the intro, many different experts on the subject who don't necessarily agree with one another. In the beginning, A codependent relationship was defined as one where there was substance abuse. In fact, it was alcoholism because it was talked about and reported in AA literature, Alcoholics Anonymous. So there was substance abuse within the relationship with a person who wasn't the user enabling the continuation of the abuse by hiding it, discounting it, explaining it away, not confronting it, or even denying the painful impact of the illness. Here's a classic and real example from my own practice. A woman's alcoholic husband would wake up in the middle of the night demanding more beer at about 2 o'clock a.m. What she would do would be drive to get the beer for him. Her reasoning? No one would get hurt if she drove. Now, you know, that's understandable and even seemingly rational on her part. Yet, what might a non-codependent partner do? They might pick up the phone and call the police immediately when their husband gets his key and leaves. Obviously, there's a little more risk involved, but you would be confronting the real problem. Now, she doesn't do this for many reasons. Maybe he's abusive. He's not going to get treatment, so why bother? The children would be embarrassed. She'd be embarrassed. Her driving and, again, enabling avoids the conflict. She may need a sense of control, and that's how she gets it. And you can go on and on and on in her reasoning of why she doesn't do it or why she doesn't confront the problem. Now, it's very tough when someone you love has an addiction. Yet enabling it doesn't work in the long term. The enabler may actually feel superior or better than the abuser and find some weird sort of self-esteem by continuing to help hide the problem. And it can go on for years. These days, however, the term codependent has really morphed into something much more general. When I hear as a therapist, I'm codependent or we're codependent, I think people seem to be describing a loss of feeling responsible as individuals and that their lives are too tightly interwoven. For example, the belief might be, I wouldn't do what I do if you didn't do what you did. Not necessarily blaming, but almost feeling as if your relationship is a seesaw. You're on one end and your partner's on the other end. So when they're up, you're down. When you're up, they're down. What's also highly likely is that the relationship is bringing out each individual's most unhealthy problems. The couple doesn't know where one of them begins and the other one ends. They become what's termed enmeshed. Here's an example of this kind of seesawish type of relationship. An insecure woman with problems with self-hatred purges where she vomits her food. She is partnered with a perfectionistic man who is uncomfortable with conflict. He can hear what she's doing late at night, but doesn't confront her disease. Instead, he avoids it like the plague. She continues purging for comfort, urgently needing his attention. When she finally becomes too sick, he waits on her hand and foot and tells her how great she looks. She soaks up his attentiveness. When he returns to being his normal self or not there for her, she begins the cycle all over again, focusing only on needing to please. You can see that they're both trapped in their own pain, yet their interaction is compulsive. It's not good, honest, caring, and empathy They may both feel they have no other choice than to do what they're doing. And so, the destructive pattern continues. There was an article in Psychology Today that I thought was interesting on the topic, but by a woman named Linda Esposito. I'll have the link to it in the show notes. She offers questions about how you can tell you're in a codependent relationship. There are six of them. One Does your sense of purpose involve making extreme sacrifices to satisfy your partner's needs? Two, is it difficult to say no when your partner makes demands on your time and energy? Number three, do you cover up your partner's problems with drugs, alcohol, or the law? Number four, do you constantly worry about others' opinions of you? Number five, do you feel trapped in your relationship? Or number six, Do you keep quiet to avoid arguments? So if any of this fits you, or a lot of those fit you, you might want to consider that your relationship has some codependent features within it. You know, it's interesting to me that there was one researcher on codependence, and I forget his name right now, but he really thought that codependency should be a mental illness in and of itself. He had definite criteria that needed to be met, they're a lot more complicated than these questions from Miss Esposito. I got a little confused just reading them myself. So I wanted to keep this as clear as possible. And I think her questions are good ones. By the way, it was turned down as an illness in and of itself. Now, dependent personality disorder is a mental illness or it is a personality disorder and it involves dependency and passivity, but it's not the same thing as codependence. So what can you do when you realize that your relationship is taking up way too much of your energy, or when you know there's a secret in your family that you'll do anything to hide from others? Of course, that would, again, be enabling. Or that you jump through all kinds of hoops to keep your partner happy, even though there's a problem that neither of you is confronting head on. I've come up with 10 questions, five for what I call the enabled, and five for the enabler. For instance, in our example a few minutes ago, the woman who had the purging issue would be the enabled, and her husband was the enabler. So, five questions for the enabled Are you personally confronting your problems, or do you blame others for them? Two, do you feel entitled? or owed the help your partner offers? Number three, if you have an addiction or self-destructive problem, how are you denying it to yourself or others? Do you not even see it as an issue? Are you being honest about its impact on your family and your own life? Number four, do you know how to give? If not, what work do you need to do to learn? And number five, what would have to happen for you to seek treatment or help? and five questions for the enabler. Number one, how did you become afraid of conflict? Number two, what might have caused you to be uncomfortable with receiving? Number three, when did you begin to find your self-esteem in being a giver or to make sacrifices constantly for others? Do you like control a little too much? Number four, Does your partner's problem tend to make you feel superior to him or her? If so, what has made that important to feel? Number five, what is keeping you in the relationship? Are you afraid of leaving? And if so, why? These questions aren't easy to answer, nor are they in any way complete or all that's needed. They're a starting point or a guide to the kind of emotional work that needs to be done if your relationship has a chance of being healthy. A good therapist can obviously help. But there are also some excellent books on the topic, and I'll have links to these books in the show notes. A classic is Codependent No More. There's an old book that came out years ago, but has been reprinted a lot, called Women Who Love Too Much. It's very good. And then there's one called Codependency for Dummies. I saw a lot of quotes from the authors of that book in different articles, so it must be a good one. Of course, there are also support groups. AA, or Alcoholics Anonymous, is there for the substance abuser. There's also NA, Narcotics Anonymous. Al-Anon is an excellent resource for enablers. Al-Anon is a group specifically designed for the people who are trying to stay in relationship with people who abuse substances. It teaches you to detach with love. And then there's Codependence Anonymous, another supportive and teaching organization for people who have recognized, oh yeah, they're enablers all right, and they want help. There are chapters of all these groups in every major city, and even in smaller towns, There's probably an AA and an Al-Anon, not so sure about a CODA or Codependence Anonymous, but you can look. The goal within these groups, and certainly for the books, is for you to unhook from one another. If you are the enabled, to take responsibility for fixing what problems you have as an individual. If you're the enabler, to expect to give and receive in a good, healthy relationship. And for neither of you to live your life in denial or martyrdom. In a healthy relationship, there's what I call interdependence, not codependence. That means that you, of course, become accustomed to someone doing things for you that, frankly, they may be better at doing than you are, and you are better at some things than they are. So you develop an interdependence on one another, but there is give and take. That's what's missing in large part in a codependent relationship, at least in any kind of of healthy or productive way. Our email from a listener today brings up the important point of, is the seven-year itch really viable? And what do you do when it raises its head? So he introduces himself and says, in the last couple of weeks, I've begun listening to your podcast While I still have a long way to go in my mental and emotional journey, it has done me an incredible amount of good. You've asked for listeners to email you with a little information about themselves, so I thought I'd do that. I'm a 38-year-old gay man living in California. Most of my life I've been very shy and introverted and have lacked self-confidence, partially due to struggling with my weight as a child. I'm currently working with my boyfriend of around seven years to repair our relationship. We both have problems with communication and have tended to avoid any conflict. Last year, he attempted to have an affair, but backed out at the last moment. He regretted it and revealed this to me immediately. But as we'd always done, we brushed it under the rug and moved on. This past year has been extremely emotional for me as he's pulled away, spending more time with friends and less nights at home. I've become lonely and jealous angry about some of the people he was bringing into our lives. Things have come to a head recently, as we could both see the relationship crumbling, and we've begun talking more about our current feelings and problems we should have communicated about years ago. This happens so much. As an editorial side note, I've suggested that we begin couples therapy to work through our communication issues, and while he's agreed, we've not made that step yet. I did a search for a therapy podcast in the meantime and came across self-work. In particular, your podcast on perfectly hidden depression, anxiety, fear of missing out, and anything related to relationships have really helped me to calm my mind when I have feelings of anxiety or paranoia about our relationship. Then he goes on to say some nice things about self-work. So, I'm going to read you what I wrote to him, but know first that the seven-year itch is a real thing. There seems to be a time around six to eight years where you've tolerated what you've tolerated for a while. Then you realize things may not change like you hope maybe they would in your partner or even in yourself. And I've seen it over and over. I don't think that's all that's going on in this relationship, but obviously they're sweeping things under the rug is a huge problem, but I have seen... That period of time caused some problems over and over. So I say, hello there. I so appreciate you reaching out. It certainly sounds as if you and your boyfriend are at a crossroads of some kind and are no longer avoiding that conflict, but working through your disappointments and anger. That very process can lead to an even greater sense of trust and intimacy if and when it's accomplished. I actually think it's a positive sign that he came to you and let you know what he had been tempted to do. I'm sure that was hard to hear, but it could have opened a conversation between the two of you. Those conversations are avoided by many, believe me, because they're difficult to have. So having the guidance of a good relationship therapist can be really helpful, and perhaps you can ask around about who others might recommend, someone who's especially known for work with couples. Not everyone's good at it, and both of you need to feel comfortable from the very beginning. I want to further say that couples work can be very difficult, but when you get someone who knows what they're doing, then both of you can feel understood and gently guided to see the impact of what you say, what you do on your partner. You can look back at the families you grew up in and how those different families are affecting your current relationship with one another, and you can learn to talk about your anger and disappointment in specific ways that, again, build intimacy rather than break it down. There are not a lot of people who know how to do it, but when you learn, it's a skill you'll use the rest of your life. Good luck to you, and thanks so much for writing and listening to Self Work there are no perfect relationships. And so we run into problems in them from time to time. We get what I like to call out of sync. And really, what I have learned is that it doesn't take all that much effort to tweak the relationship into being much better and much more fulfilling. It does take both people taking responsibility for themselves. But when you do that, then your relationship can grow. I certainly hope that this listener works on his relationship, and that he and his partner learn how to communicate and listen. Thanks for listening today to Self Work. This is the 58th podcast, which I still can't believe. (laughs) So many of you are writing, And I love receiving your emails. They are confidential. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. And my website is drmargaretrutherford.com. I've got my podcast there, but also blog posts that I write weekly. I've been doing it for five years. So there are hundreds of them, not that you'd want to read them all, but perhaps the ones that are pertinent to you. And in fact, I just launched a new website. I'm very proud of how it looks and how it's very easy to maneuver. So you might head over to DrMargaretRutherford.com and give it a look. If you want to subscribe there, you can and you'll receive a weekly newsletter. That's it, I promise, which contains both my weekly blog post and my weekly podcast. Or you can subscribe wherever you listen. And of course, that is so wonderful when you do. When I see that number going up, I think, oh, wow, people are really wanting to hear this podcast next week. And that makes me feel great and very motivated. I also so appreciate it that there are 64 of you who have taken the couple of seconds it takes to leave me a rating, and there are 38 of you who have left me a review. I actually left one myself that I had copied and pasted from a listener who wanted me to do that, so please don't think I'm completely narcissistic when you see the ratings and reviews. But I would appreciate more of those, as that's the best way for self-work to reach more people. Unless, of course you just let people know, (laughs) that good old word of mouth. For those of you who have been really listening to the Perfectly Hidden Depression podcasts in specific, episode 60, which will be not the next one, but the next, will be on a specific treatment approach that I've devised for Perfectly Hidden Depression. So I hope that many of you will look forward to that as we continue to try to understand this syndrome of behaviors. I so appreciate you listening. I hope this was helpful to you. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.